Hello and welcome to OpWall's Field Notes, a podcast created by Operation Wallacea to share stories and insights from our 25 years working in the field. My name is Sophia Wood, OpWall's Country Manager for Ecuador and Director of Friends of Wallacea, and I will be your host for this series. We launched this podcast to shine a light on the world of biodiversity field research and the work of those who dedicate their lives to understanding and protecting our planet. Each month, we have conversations with scientists, community conservationists, and experienced academics about new research, protecting biodiversity, and daily life out in the field. Today's guest is Dr. Darren O'Connell, a molecular ecologist from Ireland focused on speciation, the study of how new species evolve over space and time. Darren completed his PhD with Opwall in Sulawesi, studying how islands affect the development of new species of birds. He has also played a critical role in identifying the Wangi Wangi White Eye, an Indonesian bird new to science. We will go into the process of describing a species across international borders in this episode. Today, Darren is studying honeybee colonies in Ireland to understand how climate change and other stress factors affect these populations. We cover how Darren ended up studying island biogeography and speciation, what these studies tell us about conservation efforts, and the long and challenging process of describing a new species on this episode of Opwall's Field Notes. Hi, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, well, I guess it's morning here, not so much morning over there. Since we're taping everything from home today, where are you based right now? So I moved back to my home city of Dublin for my current job. So uh, I I turned my old childhood bedroom in my parents' house into my office, basically, uh, which is a bit surreal. And but it's been quite nice because during the lockdown, I can kind of replicate some normal day day activities. I can like go from my girlfriend's apartment to my office and do my work, and then leave to another space where I can kind of relax. And so yeah, I'm pretty lucky, really. Nice. So you are five kilometers away from where you live you have a real office commute yeah yeah it's actually it's it's really handy I mean the tiny bubble I'm allowed uh, <laughs> to sort of transport myself in um just uh I'm quite lucky really for all this um I got this job in Dublin and like a lot of my oldest friends and my parents and my girlfriend live within the same five kilometer bubble um maybe I'm very insular by nature but anyway yeah <laughs> it's worked out pretty well yeah, that's that's very convenient. And obviously, yeah. a lot of us have had to move home or move back to countries of origin because of this. Um, so before we launch into kind of your your current work, I wanted to take a step back and ask you how you first became inspired and, and decided to become a scientist. Probably, uh, I blame David Attenborough. Uh, probably, I watched all those documentaries when I was a kid. Uh, I'm not really sure from... I think when I was really small, I said I was going to be a farmer, which is a strange choice for someone from inner city Dublin. But uh, I think once I uh, figured out that wasn't going to work, uh, I said I was going to be a zoologist. Um, it's the only thing I ever remember writing down when I was asked what my career would be. David Nattenborough probably has a lot of conservation biologists to think uh, who's inspired. Yeah. And so were you always passionate about birds when you were thinking about zoology? Not really. I actually knew nothing about them until I did my undergraduate thesis. I was kind of more of a mammal guy, but uh, I wanted to work with a certain supervisor who largely worked on birds. So I took a project with her and 
yeah, it got me really excited about them. They're, they're great to work with. They're really visual. There's loads of ways you can interact with them in ways you can't do with other groups. Uh, and yeah, I've become kind of obsessed since really. It was an interesting journey because I got quite into bird research in Ireland uh, for a while afterwards. Like I, I knew I was kind of learning on the go, so it felt like a fraud during most of it. But uh, now I'm kind of like a repository of bird knowledge. So, you know, worked out. Yes, I, I have, I've seen that there's a tendency for ornithologists to get very, very excited about their research subjects, um, which is why I think I always have to ask, you know, if you were always very excited about birds. Oh, well, I, I, yeah, it's in my blood now to, to, to the best. Yeah, but, <laughs> far better than I do. <laughs> um, and then, so obviously, you know, you said you did your undergraduate thesis uh, about birds. You were looking at mammals before that. And then you went on to work with, with Opwal in Indonesia as a part of your PhD. Um, so what were the key research questions that you were focused on at that time? So basically it was a study of uh, evolution on islands. So my supervisors had been going out with Opwal since like 1999, every second or third summer, collect data on the island birds out there in this little archipelago called the Wapitobi Islands, which is a string of islands off uh, Sulawesi which is the strangely shaped island in the middle of Indonesia. Sulawesi is really cool. It's uh, full of endemic animals. It's basically, it lies right beside a deep ocean trench, which separates Asian and Australian fauna. But it's kind of separated from both a bit. So it also has lots of weird things there, which you can't really get anywhere else. We were looking at this string of islands there, which hadn't really been worked on for more than 100 years. And the idea was to look at uh, is there splits in these populations or are there new species on the islands? And then also look at island biogeography effects, which is basically um, what are the dri drivers of change in island populations and if there is any change. Wow, it sounds like you probably were doing a lot of island hopping then and, and yeah. catching a lot it, of birds. Yeah, just it was, kind of, it, was, it was really privileged to be honest. I just spent a lot of time meandering around uh, southeast Sulawesi on different islands, seeing all sorts of weird and wonderful things from my PhD fieldwork. And so how long were you working in Sulawesi and what were the main findings and takeaways from your research there? Uh, I suppose I spent maybe like, was it like eight months or nine months in Sulawesi in total split up over four field seasons. Uh, so yeah, it worked out really nicely. So we described two new species of birds, uh, showed some interesting patterns of speciation in those, in the, the Zostrops white eyes, which these little fellows with like big white rings around their eyes, which the Indonesians call boring kachamata, which basically just means spectacled bird. Uh, they have this like quizzical like glasses wearing expression. And then like looked at kingfishers and other groups and saw similar patterns. Um, and then we were looking at in sort of the island effects in those birds as well and found some really nice results in terms of uh, maybe uh, shifts in dietary niche on the islands that you might have a wider niche for the island birds and their feeding patterns. And then also changes in dietary niche and the sunbirds on the islands was another thing we looked at specifically where in these high, the sunbirds, which are, look really like American hummingbirds, um, they're these little nectar feeders, and they get in these like hyper dense populations on islands, uh, which seem to lead to a lot greater competition 
and you get changes in sexual dimorphism. So that's basically changes in how the males and females split the niche. Uh, so it looks like the males basically eaten into some of the niche of the females. Uh, so it's probably a way for them to avoid in intraspecific competition. Wow, very cool. Um, so I want to dig into obviously some of these topics that you've brought up. Uh, you know, you've talked about island biogeography, speciation, um, some of these issues that explain to us a lot of kind of how, you know, how species might have evolved uh, or how they continue to evolve. So what made you decide to go into evolutionary biology? Well, I had a really inspirational lecture. We became my PhD supervisor, basically. Uh, she was like, probably still the best teacher I've ever come across, which was great. Got me really interested in the concepts. It's just like very intellectually engaging. And then it's kind of, it feels like a very storied tradition. You know, you can trace all of these concepts back to people like Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace and to trace revolution through. It's steeped in natural history as well as bringing in the most modern genetic techniques. Uh, so yeah, uh, I'd say yeah, inspirational teacher, basically. That's also a big, I think a big motivator for a lot of people is someone who can take you to the next level in what you're looking at. Yeah, I think I should probably name check your professor, Nicola Marples. I actually had the chance to interview here on our XC2 uh, lecture series on YouTube this summer when we were on lockdown. So yeah, so we had we have actually, if anyone wants to go and check out Nicola Marple's lecture on some of the speciation in Indonesia, that is available on the Opwal YouTube channel, and we can link it in the show notes. So I wanted to ask you if you could go into more depth on how to, what is speciation and, and what can it tell us about our planet and about conservation? So basically, it's the way in which species are form how how a population which was previously one continuous species it splits the form into two different species it's a process which you know obviously can take a very long time uh, it's you know newly measured in geological time but not not quite that long so there's different ways it can happen and i suppose the traditional one is that there's just a barrier between two populations that's the main mode of speciation allopatric speciation so We'll say a small proportion of the population moves out onto an island and gets split off. Or, you know, if there's over geological time and mountain range might push up between uh, populations of the species, different ways in which barriers form to allow them to basically isolate and uh, they no longer share genes uh, effectively. And then even if they reconnect, if they've changed enough when they're isolated, then they probably won't mate. Uh, what it tells us, I find it just find it inherently interesting. And then from a conservationist point of view, basically the the unit of conservation almost always is species. And we we count up species, we look at key species, and we we conservation resources are always scarce effectively. So usually we're trying to put the resources in place in areas of highest endemism, which is like where they have the most unique species. Uh, so if we don't understand how species form and also where species are, then we can't really make appropriate conservation decisions. Uh, so even if we don't necessarily know every species in the ecosystem, if we have a good idea of what leads to species formation, we can make a good guess of where the most species are so we can put conservation resources in place. 
Right. That makes a lot of sense and explains a lot of why we focus so much on biodiversity hotspots area where there's a lot of species. So you you sort of put in a good segue to ask you the next question, which is to go into more depth about what island biogeography is um, and how that plays a role in speciation or, or what the importance is of doing the work that you did on islands. So islands are really interesting and they're kind of what has inspired a lot of natural history and speciation research and evolutionary research. So people like Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace, they, they got a lot of their inspiration from working on islands. So basically you see evolutionary processes happening much more quickly because more extreme selection is put on populations. They get split off from the mainland and there's very strong, you know, there's, there's new challenges in that environment and they have to adapt to them. And because of this, you often see new species forming on islands. So islands are uh, both where the most unique species are, so the, the, the places with the most endemism, where there's different unique species you don't get elsewhere. And they're also the place where there's the most extinction. So pretty much everything that goes extinct goes extinct on islands. That's a general rule. It's not, it's not true for everything. We're really good at killing large mammals everywhere. But uh, islands are very vulnerable. Uh, pretty much all modern bird species have gone extinct on uh, on islands because basically they have low effective population size. So anything with a low population size is very vulnerable. And also they're usually... Um, biologically naive, uh, which is they haven't been exposed to the diversity of predators and threats that you get on mainlands. So if you drop a cat on an island, it might wipe out an entire bird species because they're just not used to it. And then humans, of course, uh, have quite an impact when they show up on islands. Right. Well, I've done a lot of work in the Galapagos in the last few years, and anyone who's gone there has noticed, you know, the species, exactly what you were talking about, the naiveness of the animals there, that they will walk right up to you. And <laughs> that's not normal or not what we normally see, obviously, in areas with a lot of people or places where species evolved around a bunch of predators. So how did your research contribute to knowledge about island biogeography relating to bird species in, in Indonesia? And I'll, I'll go into a bit more detail about, obviously, the described species in, in the next question, but I wanted to ask kind of what your overall conclusions were about the area or what we can learn from that. Well, I think, I suppose in terms of endemism and new species uh, and conservation, uh, I, I'll go into it further in, as I say, your follow-on question, but we showed that there is quite unique new species in areas which you wouldn't necessarily expect and that in a lot of these island groups it's worth looking a lot closer because we found like very novel species in quite densely populated places so that, that was quite cool and then just in terms of like looking at the processes and that might underlie some of how these populations change we our research kind of re-emphasized how song is probably an important role there's an important role for birds and understanding because in in all these in, in the populations we've found, which split really strongly from the mainland, we saw quite a difference in song and plumage, which is very important for birds and how they choose their mates. So like these these birds are probably capable of, of flying over this gap. But if they do fly over that gap and they show up in the new population, uh, if they're singing differently and their feathers look a little bit different than 
they're not seen as a good mate, even though they're probably biologically capable of producing offspring. So they won't exchange genes. Uh, and then I think we, we've done a good bit of work on sexual dimorphism, which is an aspect of the niche, which is not always looked at. So you might necessarily see a dramatic overall change in populations niche between Ireland or mainland. But if you look at subtle things like how are males and females splitting up resources, you can pick out changes that indicate the island populations are, are, are evolving differently. Um, so which generally we found more sexual dimorphism on these islands. So maybe the males and females are trying to find a way not to compete with each other, or also there's less species on the islands, so they might have more interest split out in different directions. Wow, very interesting. So are you suggesting that there might be um, bird species that we've not described on islands that are populated that we've been researching for years that we just aren't oh. recognizing as species? Yeah, definitely. Well, Indonesia, it's, there's a bunch of island groups where I think need more attention and there's kind of been hints that there might be new species there. There's, there's things which look a bit strange. Just It's just a huge place and there's so many island groups and it's just full of biodiversity. But it's a, like there's, um, there's a, he's still a huge amount of work to do in that region in particular. And then there's, you know, there's other areas like the, the Amazon and the Himalayas where you could say similar things. For different reasons, both those places are hard to work in. So there's definitely probably new vertebrate species. But you're not just around Sulawesi, uh, like a year after we published on those two new bird species, uh, another research group on islands off central Sulawesi described five new bird species. So yeah, there's a lot to be done. Wow, that's very exciting. Um, I was going to ask you kind of what constitutes a big enough barrier to split species into different areas because obviously birds can fly as you said they might be able to fly over an area which might be different for herps or mammals who can't cross water bodies but might be able to cross other kinds of bodies so what's big enough to split them and then also how do you get to the point where you can say this really is a different species because I feel the line could be kind of gray Oh, it is. Yeah, basically. Um, so that's uh, an incredibly vicious debate, uh, effectively. So there's a lot of different approaches. And I think there's different species concepts, obviously. So there's like more old school phenotypic species concepts, which are based on looking at physical differences between populations. And there's newer ones like the phylogenetic species concept, which basically looks at the genetics of the populations and seeing how they're split off on phylogenetic trees, which is how we envisage how populations split uh, in terms of as they evolve. So does that require a blood test, basically, to be able to tell what their genes are like? Yeah, so any genetic material. So what okay. I use most of is feathers, uh, and then you sequence their DNA, and then you can create these trees and split them off. But just, just pros and cons of basically every approach. So what we took on was an integrative approach where we tried to show differences in those many species concepts as possible. So we showed genetic splits in these mitochondrial genes, which are known as DNA barcoding genes. So there's been calculated differences in these genes, which are, so they took, if you take several hundred species and you calculate the average species gap in that gene, then you have a decent idea at how much of a, a gap that you need to for it to be a new species. You can't really use that alone. 
then we also saw phenotypic differences, like differences in body size and also in plumage. And then we also showed strong differences in song. And this is where birds are actually really handy for studying because the only real way to show whether something is a new species is whether or not there's gene club. Uh, and that's quite hard to show without like basically population level genomic screening. Um, and actually when they do population genomic screening, they usually find a lot more gene flow between really good species than they'd actually expect. So it's it's a messy uh, concept. Um, but if you show um, differences in mate preference um, attributes, so birds choose mates by their plumage and by their song, and they're really quite picky. They want someone who performs really well. So if the things that they use to advertise that they're an attractive mate are different between the different populations, then they probably won't recognize each other as attractive mates. So um, yeah, that's that's one really handy way to show it. But yeah, basically, it is, it is a difficult idea and it is much less solid than we say it is. So there is huge areas of gray. And, you know, that's that's one area I'm like, that is a lot of interesting stuff is coming up the more genes are sequenced. When you look at genome level sequencing, you're like, okay, there's a lot of interchange here. But that doesn't mean they're not good species. Coyotes and wolves constantly swap genes, but they're still completely different gene species. That's very interesting. And I'll have to ask you at the end if you have any good resources for people who are interested in learning more. I've always found island biogeography to be <clears throat> one of these topics that is so complex and so fascinating and what it tells us about, you know, how species evolve and evolved. So obviously one of the big, you know, questions in here is, is you played a significant role in uh, the description of the wangy wangy white eye, uh, which you mentioned earlier, which is one of the most prominent species that, that's been described by all scientists, obviously. Um, could you talk a bit more about the process of describing a new species uh, what it was like, especially one that's as you know charismatic as a songbird that mm. you know in a densely populated area, as you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, and just to give a, a little background, the Wangy Wangy White Eye. It's what makes it really quite interesting and cool is that it's is very unique even within the region. So it's it's a white eye species, which is a big genus, the fastest evolving vertebrate vertebrates along with the chicklids in you know the east african lakes uh, so they're one of these great speciator lineages in the indo-pacific which is basically these lineages have just spread across all these islands and evolved really quickly and so the wangi wangi what i just kind of been missed it seems and my supervisors initially went to the region uh they saw this strange bird with a big yellow bill, which makes it quite different looking from all the other white eyes in the region. They're these like little tidy black bills, but the wangy wangy is this massive big yellow bill. And they're like, what is that? Um, so they figured it was probably something different because again, bill, bright bill coloration is probably mate signaling. So it's just like, ah, oh, look at my beautiful coloration. I'm a great mate. Um, so it shows like something going on there. Um, anyway, so when you know, my supervisors assumed it was like some split off one of the nearby white eyes, but when we sequence its genes, the closest relative was more than 3,000 kilometers away. Like these, like these white eyes, which are only found on a few islands in the Solomons. So it's probably what you'd call maybe, it might be a relict taxon. So basically um, you have these cool taxon cycles in the Indo-Pacific where, you know, a group spreads out across these islands and then things get mixed up a bit by a hurricane or something. and uh, 
you know, populations might go extinct in different islands or things might be disrupted. And then you get these spreads back across the islands by different species. So the Wangi Wangi Wildlife might be kind of a leftover from a previous spread and then newer species have come back over the region and it has just hung on in this one small little island. Uh, there's probably only a, a couple of hundred breeding pairs. They kind of hang out in like this tiny patch of forest by the airport uh, and a couple of scrub areas. And it's, Wangi Wangi is like, it's a weird place for a single island endemic to be. It's, it's really small. It's like 155 kilometers and uh, it's really densely populated. It's like the most densely populated island brand in the region. Uh, so it's it's quite bizarre. But yeah, it's cool. Wow, that's that's really strange. And what was the? Were you involved in the process of of having to describe it? And what, oh, yeah. what is that process like? I forgot the whole aspect of my description. Um, but anyway, yeah. So it's uh, it can be lengthy, basically. So it's still ongoing. So we have provided the scientific justification for its identification as a species. But now basically it's a, a series of applying for licenses to collect individuals of that species to be lodged in a museum. So in some ways, in the ways of naming species are still very Victorian. Uh, I, you know, and it wouldn't, you know, there's parts of the process which I definitely don't agree with. But anyway, in order to get a species officially recognized, you need two individuals of that species place in a, in a museum uh, and then recognized so that so that people in future can come back and compare these museum specimens to other uh, individuals in other museums but collecting and culling vertebrates to place them in a museum is something that we you need quite specific license for you're not really allowed to do it um, without very strong justification uh, and because of fears of biopiracy, uh, which is basically when Westerners come in and take biological resources from nations in the tropics, which has happened loads, unfortunately, uh, these pro these licenses take a while to process through, effectively. Um, so yeah, it's kind of integrating with local partners to make sure things are done right, and then also integrating with uh, a traditional taxonomic uh, uh, sort of boards and like people who decide on what are new species and these are like global taxonomic groupings and uh yeah so it's uh it's a prolonged process sometimes and it can be a balancing act uh, and it maybe isn't quite as fast as you'd want if you're focused on conservation but yeah it's it's a process so, so where we are in the process right now is you have to go, someone has to go and collect a specimen. Yeah, basically, exactly. So the scientific justification has been established and we're basically, our Indonesian partners are waiting for approval to collect the specimen to lodge in a museum, uh, which, you know, hopefully it'll happen soon. Right, um, well, we'll stay yeah. tuned. <laughs> yeah. um, so I want to move forward, obviously, from your work in Alphal because you've done a, a lot of stuff since then and a lot of interesting research. So where has your research taken you since you were working with Opal in Indonesia? So I straight back to Indonesia was, well, actually, no, that's a lie. Uh, so I well, finished my PhD and kind of immediately started another job because um, I, I needed to pay rent even though I was exhausted. But yeah, I got a, I just moved across the city I was in, which I did my PhD in Dublin. So I got a job in uh, University College Dublin, 
working on different genetic as aspects of bats. Uh, so basically, bats live a lot longer than would be expected for their body size. And they also have far better immune responses. And uh, like this uh, element of research has been massively concentrated since coronavirus, basically, because um, bats have lots of coronaviruses and we don't understand how they can handle them and we can't effectively. Um, but yeah, so that was really cool. I, I got to do field work in Northern France and in Brittany, uh, hang out in old churches and catch bats all night and take genetic samples and do a lot of looking at telomeres, which are basically these little protective caps on the end of your chromosomes, which uh, help ensure your DNA is protected when it replicates, so that it replicates faithfully. And as they degrade, it's a sign that you're aging, basically. So age is just um, an accumulation of bad replication. Uh, you just start to, yeah, you just can't replicate your internal processes anymore. Uh, so that was that was pretty cool. Uh, and then I got a job in Newcastle University in the UK, and I was back to Indonesia in the mangroves of northern Sulawesi. And basically, we're looking at differences between restored and natural mangrove forest and uh, by using ecological networks. So how plants and animals interact and those interactions are basically key for how ecosystems sustain themselves. So the idea was if you have more natural networks in certain types of restoration. So some of our restoration treatments were like mixed species and then some of them were just monocultures which is usually how we restore things. We're just plant things in line, all the same species. And we're looking at differences in network structure. So I'm still working on that data and we're using like traditional observation and then trying to tie in sort of, again, DNA methods. So like if you get plant DNA off animals' mouth parts, uh, then you show there's a connection there. Uh, on the main, it looks like mixed species restoration is a better way to do it, which is a nice result. And um, though there's weird different things like you get if you're just looking at producing biomass, like if you want to um, get, you know, trees or crabs, just just plant monoculture because crabs love it and they'll go, they'll go crazy. Um, and then, yeah, so I finished that postdoc at the end of December, still working on that data. And then I started another postdoc looking at basically, you know, the molecular ecology, which is basically how you use DNA to look at ecological questions of bee disease in Ireland. So taking samples of uh, bees from honeybee colonies all over Ireland and looking at the disease interactions there, because colony collapse is a massive problem in pollinators. Uh, and stuff like varroa mite and fell brood and these things are really affectionate. And then we're doing these nice little, well, we're going to do uh, climate change experiments where uh, we get different genetic strains of bees and we put them in greenhouses and ramp up the temperature basically and see which genetic strains are basically are showing better adaptability to uh, climate change. So it's kind of cool. It'd be like the genomics of climate change adaptation. Uh, and yeah, so this this job has been really nice for pandemic basically because a lot of my Indonesian fieldwork was wrecked in Newcastle by the pandemic. I was actually about four days away from flying to Indonesia for my last field season when Newcastle got locked down. Uh, and you know things haven't really gone back to the way they were since uh, so yeah it's fact it's good to be back in Ireland because you know it's not a good time to be isolated from you know uh, my girlfriend was living in Dublin uh, so it wouldn't be great to be stuck in Newcastle 
Uh, and then I, you know, I have this sort of research project I can do during a lockdown. Effectively. So, yeah, I suppose my career since has been, you know, using DNA in different ways to answer ecological questions. And, you know, I'm hoping to continue on with that of different, different ideas to go forward. Uh, might get back to speciation research at some point, but it's just, I was quite lucky really I got a PhD in that. It's kind of, it's hard to fund really. Uh, so, you know, it's good to get a bit of versatility in there in my early career. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, I'm glad I was about to ask you actually if your field research had been interrupted last year. It sounds like yes, and you were able to do something else, which is great. So what's your favorite part about working in the field? Um, and maybe if you could come up with a few of your biggest challenges as well. Oh, geez. Um, yeah, I think it's, uh, I, I do think the challenges are part of it. So that like, it is very varied and there's a lot of interesting problems to solve on a consistent basis, uh, which I think is, uh, is really kind of just something enlivening about it. Uh, it's obviously not really nice to see cool wildlife uh, and this sort of stuff. Uh, I do, I've always enjoyed the cultural aspects as well. Like I nearly ended up doing like history and sociology as an undergraduate degree is kind of the other thing I would have done. So I quite like experiencing different cultures and languages and, and stuff like that. And then I just kind of, you know, feel a bit more alive a lot of the time, really. It's kind of more engaging. Um, I think, you know, uh, I, some of the listeners or whatever might read George Mondio, who's like a, a guardian environmental economist. Uh, I remember him writing about being ecologically bored when he's like basically at home in cities. I think there's, there is kind of something to that. Like our brains are structured to be stimulated by a simulated environment. Um, and as last year has probably made all of us experience, um, when you're kind of stuck at a computer all the time and you don't have variation in your day, um, like I just have much less energy when I'm not in the fields. Like I, there's something invigorating about it just inherently, I think like just all these different experiences and, you know, a more stimulating environments and yeah. I completely agree. I think that's, that's probably one of my favorite parts as well. Well, as we're rounding out here, I wanted to ask what advice do you have for people who are interested in starting a career in, in conservation or in zoology and you know, maybe do you have any advice that you would have liked to give your younger self when you were starting out in this career path? Yeah, well, I think one thing in general is like, I think there's a huge amount of luck involved. And also like, just even personally, I've been massively privileged in how it's gone for me. Like, I wouldn't say I'm here because I'm brilliant writing. And also, you know, <laughs> I'm still an early career researcher, so it could all blow up on me any time, really. Basically, it's, it is a precarious, uh, like, career choice. Um, so if it doesn't work out, then it's not really a reflection on you. Uh, it is very interesting and I've enjoyed it the whole way through and it's gone really well. So that's, but I think a lot of that is probably due to look, uh, but I'm glad I made that choice. Uh, I suppose if I was giving advice to anyone setting off, um, I'd probably say value yourself pretty highly. So I think a lot of people treat it like a vocation, uh, and do a lot of like, you know, there's pros and cons for volunteering um, and like I've definitely volunteered before but you know don't be afraid to, to value yourself and negotiate aggressively and if something isn't working out for you you know just drop it basically you know I think most biologists and conservationists don't value themselves highly enough effectively and you know 
in some ways it's better to just decide it's not working out and move on to something <laughs> which uh, rewards you uh, on a, a more material level and more appropriately than conservation or e ecology will. Uh, yeah, so I'd say it's definitely worth giving a go. It's been a really interesting way to make a living. Um, uh, it's, you know, it doesn't always work out, but you know, when it does, it's pretty great. Well, we'll try not to discourage people from conservation biology, but obviously, of course, I think, you know, it is, it is a challenging career and you do have to be prepared to have hard knocks, even when you think that you are pretty well established, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which is a lot of careers, to be fair, but certainly not maybe some of the more traditional ones. Well, to end this out on a positive note, why do you personally believe we should keep fighting to protect biodiversity and prevent climate change? And really what gets you out of bed in the morning? Well, I think, you know, if we were from a selfish human point of view, then I think it is very important for maintaining the lifestyles we've become accustomed to, basically. So ecosystem stability and the services it provides is very important. Uh, and I think we probably, even, you know, the most, you know, checked out person in an urban environment probably underestimates how important it is for their mental health. So clean air, clean water, um, occasionally coming across the living animal apart from themselves. Um, but so I think from a selfish point of view, I think there's benefits. Uh, personally, why I do it is, um, I, like the ecosystem services argument is great, but it's not really, and it's especially what I work in, but it's not what inspires me. So. I kind of think of it like it's our natural heritage. So I think there's an inherent value to all these things. So I found it quite inspirational when Notre Dame burnt down and then like hundreds of millions was raised to fix it. I would see like any individual species as analogous to Notre Dame or something like that. It is an incredibly unique and beautiful thing which can't be replaced by anything else. And it's part of our history as humans that we have um, we've evolved alongside these things. They're part of our heritage, the same way like any other part of our history, which we value and we we uh, preserve. So that's kind of why I do it. It's just kind of, you know, there's an insubstantial love for these like um, parts of our history, our, our natural heritage for me, which kind of inspires me to work on them. Well, I think that's a beautiful way to end out um, before I let you go, I just wanted to ask, and I brought this up earlier, if you have any resources that you recommend to people who are interested in learning more about some of the topics that we've talked about, um, whether books, blogs, podcasts, people to follow on Twitter, or even your Twitter. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I suppose my Twitter is like at Dar O'Connell, um, D-A-R underscore O'Connell, and O-C-O-N-N-E-L-L. There's some good blogs out there. Dynamic Ecology blog is really cool. And um, I like the British Ornithologist Union blog. If you're into the bird stuff, Audubon Society put out lots of nice stuff. And if you are interested in uh, stuff like island biogeography, there's a book called The Song of the Dodo with, written by David Quammen. And that's absolutely fast. Uh, that's really cool. Uh, and then, yeah, uh, there's, there's a number of other good popular science books. Uh, David Losis wrote another one about islands and like amazing, unique evolution. Uh, and then again, I can't remember his name, Quammen wrote one called The Tangled Tree, which is all about basically evolution and how species form 
and evolutionary biology. And I think that's even the name is great because we we kind of think it, it kind of captures how we think of species as these discrete things, but it's actually a lot of messy tangles, which we're finding more and more about. So yeah. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Darren. And The Song of the Dodo is one of my favorite books. So I highly recommend it as well. Seconded there. So thank you so much for your time and uh, good luck with your bees and with the lockdown. Have a great rest of your day. Awesome. Thanks very much. Thank you for tuning in to Oddball's Field Notes. We hope you learned something new from Darren about how islands inform global conservation strategies and why it is so critical to protect local biodiversity. A special thanks to our podcast producer, Mike Judson, and editor, Beth Newark, who make this and every episode possible. Make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts to stay up to date on new episodes about conservation and biodiversity hotspots around the world coming soon on Outball's Field Notes.